Happy holidays, caller. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a time of seasonal depression is what it is. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Come on, the idea that suicide rates go up during the holidays is nothing more than a long-perpetuated myth. Don't be such a screwed. In a recent survey, 55% of Americans say they're experiencing holiday loneliness, and 35% say it's worse this year than last year. This percentage is as high as 76% in those who identify as LGBTQ. Yeah, happy holidays. Absolutely. Happy holidays. There's snow on the ground and Christmas songs in the air. Anyone who's lonely can always volunteer at local soup kitchens. What's there to be sad about? Okay, I'll give you three reasons. What are they? A serial rapist and murderer known as the Holiday Killer. A vicious gang known as the Downtown Posse. And a woman who's quick to end your life if you don't like her Christmas gift. Here are three Holiday Killers. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Ulrich Schmidt is the infamous holiday killer of Germany because of the five murders and four sexual assaults he committed between 1987 and 1989, several of which occurred on public holidays. Little is known about Schmidt's childhood. However, he came from a broken family and had been admitted to different homes from an early age. He also ran away several times. Schmidt's first known crime occurred in Essen-Stahlwald on the night of May 14, 1987, when Schmidt attacked a 49-year-old woman on the stairs to the S-Bahn platform. Schmidt put his arm around her neck from behind and demanded money at knife point. While the woman was searching through her purse, he cut her neck and pushed her down the remaining steps of the platform. Later, the victim was discovered by passers-by who found help. The woman survived her injuries after undergoing an emergency surgery. Schmidt struck again on May 27th, one day prior to Ascension Day. For those who are unfamiliar, Ascension Day commemorates the Christian belief of Jesus' body ascension into heaven, also known as Holy Thursday. At 11 p.m., Schmidt attempted to rape a 46-year-old pool attendant at the Ulse Leisure Pool at an S-Bahn station in Essen-Fraunhausen. Police arrived at the scene after an emergency call from a passenger who heard the victim screaming. Authorities found the naked corpse of the woman on a meadow below the platform. She had been stabbed 48 times with a screwdriver. On June 8, 1987, Whit Monday, another Christian feast on the liturgical calendar, this one celebrated the day after Pentecost, a 59-year-old woman was attacked by Schmidt at a restroom in Gruga Park. Schmidt forced the woman into a stall, where he demanded sex at knife point. While trying to tie the woman up, the woman fought back. After a scuffle, Schmidt beat the woman unconscious, bound her hands and legs, and cut her neck, severing her trachea and esophagus. The woman freed herself after regaining consciousness and reached an ambulance station from where she was immediately transported to the hospital and survived. On July 5th, 1987, Schmidt murdered a 63-year-old woman who was on her way home between essen Cray s bond station and her essen Hutrop. He put his arm around her neck and again demanded money at knife point, to which the victim immediately handed over to him. When Schmidt started to tie the woman up, she began to call for help, causing him to stab her several times with the knife and flee. The woman who was found a short time later by bystanders and was taken to a hospital died there almost three weeks later from injuries to the liver, pancreas, stomach, and spleen. On the morning of March 15, 1989, Schmidt broke into the house of Elizabeth Fay, 81 years old, in Essen-Holsterhausen, gaining entry by breaking a window. After hitting her several times with a blunt weapon, Schmidt stabbed her to death with a kitchen knife he found in the apartment. He then ransacked the apartment before fleeing the scene. The woman's 
body was found four hours later by her daughter. The next murder occurred on Maundy Thursday, which is the day during the Holy Week that commemorates the washing of the feet in the Last Supper. On March 24, 1989, in the Essen Margaret and Hoha district, a 19-year-old woman on her way home from the metro station was assaulted, bound, stabbed twice in the heart, and then dumped between a garage complex where a corpse was discovered by her father. Her on June 6, 1989, Schmidt murdered Petra Klen Schmidt, a 23-year-old hall supervisor in an amusement arcade of Essen Altendorf. Although the young woman was still able to press the alarm button, she bled out from two throat cuts before the police arrived. The victim had been partially undressed. On June 19, 1989, Schmidt attacked a 41-year-old woman in a parking garage in downtown Essen. As the woman walked to her car, Schmidt wrapped his arm around her neck and demanded money. After receiving the money, he tied up the woman, undressed her, raped her, and stabbed her twice in the throat. After Schmidt left, the victim was able to reach a porter's lodge, where she was rescued. The last attack happened on August 5, 1989, when Schmidt attempted to rape a 38-year-old geriatric nurse at her apartment in Essen-Rutenscheid. After the victim called for help, the victim's neighbor rushed to help, causing Schmidt to flee. However, he left his camera, which contained photos of him, his wife, and his victims. On August 8, 1989, Ulrich Schmidt was arrested near his mother's apartment in Essen. Due to advice from his lawyer, he refused to testify. In the meantime, during a search of his apartment, combat boots matching the shoe prints found at the apartment of Elizabeth Fay were discovered. In four other cases, a connection between the victim and Schmidt could be established by comparing scent traces. In the controversial procedure, specially trained dogs from the Schlossholte Stukenbrock Police Dog School sniffed out the smell of Schmidt on objects belonging to the victims. It was also determined that Schmidt often stayed overnight at his brother's workshop, which was located near one of the crime scenes. One of his jackets was found there. The fibers of Schmidt's matched the fibers found at the crime scene of the first murder. Schmidt also confessed to two fellow inmates while he was in custody. He was eventually found guilty of five murders, three attempted murders, five rapes, one attempted rape, one robbery, and two burglaries. After nearly two years in custody and 19 days of trial, he allowed his lawyer to tell the court that he no longer disputed the allegations of the prosecution. However, he does not want to speak publicly about his actions and motives, but to instead confide in a psychiatrist. After 43 days of sittings and almost a year of proceedings, Ulrich Schmidt was sentenced to life imprisonment in September of 1992. On Christmas Eve of 1992, four young people who called themselves the Downtown Posse embarked on a shooting rampage that left six people dead, two others injured, and impacted scores of others, friends, relatives, and members of the public in countless ways. The bloodthirsty gang called the Downtown Posse were led by Marvelous Keen. Also in the gang were Keen's girlfriend, Laura Taylor, as well as Demarcus Morris Smith and his girlfriend, Nicole Matthews. In the early hours of Christmas Eve, Laura Taylor, age 16, and her boyfriend, Marvelous Keen, age 19, enacted a plan to rob a man Taylor figured would pay them for sex. Taylor called Joseph Wilkerson, age 34, and promised him an orgy. She had caught the eye of the General Motors employee and lured him back to his home. As part of the plan, the couple recruited 20-year-old Heather Nicole Matthews, who had been released from prison a few months before. Taylor was tough as nails and the intellectual leader of the group. She also proved capable of murder. As Wilkerson was bound to the headboard of his bedroom with electrical cords, the trio scoured the house for valuables and found a 32 caliber Derringer that Keen used to shoot Wilkerson in the chest, 
Matthews would later testify at her trial in 1993 that Taylor put a 25 caliber weapon to Wilkerson's head and shot him a second time. The three ransacked the dead man's house, stole his car, and used it to hunt for more victims. On Neal Avenue, the group, which now included Matthews' 17-year-old boyfriend, Demarcus Murray Smith, found 18-year-old Danita Goulet talking on a payphone. Danita, a senior at Patterson Cooperative High School and the mother of a two-year-old, was a complete stranger. Danita, who had a two-year-old daughter waiting for her at home, was confronted by the gang at the phone booth in town that evening. Threatening to shoot her, they demanded she hand over her belongings. Although she did as they asked, the heartless gang shot her anyway. Danita was taken to the hospital but pronounced dead when she arrived. At least one account would later say she was shot for her Fila tennis shoes. Police found her body on the ground outside the telephone booth, shot five times. The pavement was covered with blood and 25 caliber blazer aluminum bullet shell casings. Those casings would help investigators tie the events together, along with the random nature of some of the victims and the sheer senselessness of the crimes. Taken from Galette were her coat, shoes, and a backpack containing 50 cents. The group would return to Wilkerson's house and stay the night, but attempted to claim one more Christmas Eve victim, Matthew's ex-boyfriend, Jeffrey Wright. Smith put four bullets into Wright's legs, according to police, but he escaped to a neighbor's house and survived. On Christmas Day, the 16-year-old Taylor coaxed her boyfriend, Richard Maddox, 19, from his parents' home, and the two left in Maddox's car, with Keen, Smith, and Matthews trailing behind. Maddox eventually spotted the trailing car, became suspicious, and gunned the accelerator. Taylor put a derringer to his right temple and fired. Taylor bailed out of the car before it crashed on Bitten Avenue. Maddox was later declared dead from a gunshot wound to the head. Sarah Abraham was behind the counter at this shortstop mini market, the family-owned grocery store on West 5th Street, when Taylor walked in to case the place. Minutes later, Smith and Keene walked in, and Keene shot Abraham twice in the head, the weapon's bullets similar to the casings found next to Golette's body on Neal Avenue. A witness in the store was shot in the hand and stomach but survived. Abraham died five days later. This time, the gang got away with $44. Moving around the city, the gang switched license plates on multiple stolen vehicles to elude the police. Thinking some within the group might snitch, the four ringleaders, Taylor, Keene, Matthews, and Smith, turned on two of their own. On the witness stand, Matthews said the group believed Wendy Cottrell, age 16, and Marvin Washington, age 18, could implicate them in the previous deaths. After Abraham was killed, the crew picked up Cottrell and Washington and bought some beer and wine. Keene saying he had to urinate pulled into a gravel road on Richley Drive. Smith and Keene ordered Cottrell and Washington out of the car, marched them behind a large pile of dirt, and executed them. Their bodies would not be found until the killers were in custody. Cottrell and Washington marked the fifth and sixth victims of the killer's rampage. A woman airing up her tires at the Salem Avenue gas station might have been the seventh, but she ran when her Dodge Shadow was stolen at gunpoint. A short time later, some 72 hours after the first killing, Dayton Police Sergeant John Huber eyed a suspicious vehicle, that same Dodge Shadow, on Cumler Avenue. Smith, Keene, Matthews, and Taylor were inside. Huber called in a plate check, and when the registration didn't come back to a Dodge Shadow, units closed in from all directions. After so much violence, the gang's capture was rather uneventful. Smith ran into a nearby house but was quickly captured while the other three, Keene, Matthews, and Taylor, were taken into custody without incident. 
Despite this stroke of luck, the Dayton police force found themselves outmatched and outsmarted by the spree killers. It wasn't until the bullets were examined that the cops realized the same weapon had been used in the shootings. And after a carjacking by the posse, in which the victim managed to escape, cops finally had a vehicle to look for. Later, a detective stopped the posse, driving a stolen car, with no idea they'd carried out the murders. Nearby was the car they'd abandoned, which had had the number plate swapped. Cops traced the number plate back to the house of Joseph Wilkerson, the posse's first victim. When they entered the house, they were hit with a foul smell and found Wilkerson's body with gunshot wounds tied to the bed. The grim discovery, along with an anonymous tip, finally led to the arrests of the downtown posse. Huber, who is now the director of public safety for Sinclair Community College, said afterward he learned that Taylor had ordered Keene to shoot Huber, but for some reason, he hadn't. Huber says now, it was a tragic crime at Christmas, a tough time of year. It's sad that we couldn't have gotten to them sooner. There was no rhyme or reason, there was no pattern. In a 2001 interview, Heather Nicole said that she wanted to be a part of the gang. She said, I wanted to be like them, I wanted to do what they was doing. Demarcus Marie Smith was jailed for life. On July 21, 2009, Marvelous Keene, who was convicted in five of the killings, was executed by lethal injection at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. His final meal was an enormous feast of steak, fries, a pound of prawns with cocktail sauce, onion rings, two plums, a mango, a pound of grapes, German chocolate cake, two bottles of Pepsi, two bottles of cream soda, bread, and butter. He had no last words. Laura Taylor was one of about 20 offenders who met with the parole board in 2021 because of Senate Bill 256. The law abolished life without parole sentences for minors and gave most offenders who committed their crimes as juveniles a chance to get out of prison sooner. Aggravated homicide offenses and terrorism-related murder offenses are excluded, service, according to the Ohio Legislative Service Commission. Detective Doyle Burke, who will include the Christmas killings in a book he is writing about his career, said the case exemplifies how homicide squads and uniformed officers working together can solve even the most difficult crimes. About the spree killing, Burke said, The Wilkerson killing gave them a base of operation and a vehicle. They could have stopped by just gagging him, but I don't think that was ever in their game plan. Burke says spree killers are exceedingly violent, often choose their victims at random, and kill for the enjoyment of it. Burke points out, while there were multiple victims, there are more victims. It's the family members and friends that will never outlive this. Sarah Abraham, mother of three, received a hand-drawn picture from her daughter for Christmas. A day later, she became the fourth victim of the Christmas posse. For Rhonda Gullett, the meaning of Christmas was forever changed 29 years ago. The 18-year-old sister of Danita Gullett said, I don't really celebrate the holiday like other people. I go back in my mind and I think about the day I found out that my sister was killed. Speaking about her sister's murder, Rhonda said, All she said was, don't shoot me, and they shot her anyway. She gave them everything that she had. I just wish that they would have spared my sister. For this final story, we go to the holiday season in 2013. On Christmas Day of 2013, 37-year-old Melissa Young murdered her next-door neighbor, the 47-year-old Alan Williamson, after he rejected her Christmas gift of trainers and a 2014 calendar. Williamson was reported to have sustained 29 stab wounds in the attack. Young, who was known for a tattoo of the Virgin Mary on one arm and Lucifer on the other, later claimed she committed the murder while believing she was possessed by an archangel. The transgender Melissa Young used to work as a vice girl for a local sex sauna. The former boss, a gay man who ran his salon under the name of Cher, recalled being at Young's home as she played with a carving knife and told him, I could kill them all, end quote. 
Cher, who closed his sauna in 2011, said, At the time, I thought it was scary, but I was used to her saying some strange things and trying to get attention. I don't know if she was talking about killing men or everyone. I feel fortunate to have escaped when I look back. In many ways, Melissa was a broken, broken person who was never accepted by society. But I wasn't surprised when she carried out this murder. I could picture her stabbing this man 29 times with a knife in a frenzy." End quote. Cher said Young, who used the name Chloe at work, was popular with clients at Cher's private club sauna. She transitioned in 2002 after being brought up in Perth. Just a year later, she was taken on at the sauna. Cher, who asked for his real name to be withheld, said, One of my staff at the sauna asked if her friend could come in for a job. I clicked right away from looking at her. She was so tall and had this husky voice. This was about a year after she had the op done on the NHS. But I don't discriminate, so I gave her a job. End quote. Young joined a roster of around a dozen women at the sauna in West Annandale Street. But Cher said his newest recruit quickly became a volatile source of tension. He said, She had run-ins with all the girls. They were frightened of her. She would start these fights because she had an inferiority complex. End quote. Cher, who was 58 years old, said Young told her she had been the target of bullies when she began cross-dressing while still in her teens. Cher said, She showed me nude photos of herself as Richard, and he was beautiful. She would dress as a woman at the age of 14 or 15. Gangs of kids used to beat her up in the street. She didn't have much of a life after her sex change. She suffered from paranoia and thought everyone was always talking about her. Her smoking cannabis on a daily basis didn't help that. Melissa never had any relationships with men. It was all one-night stands, of which there were many, and punters. She was too unbalanced to get close to." End quote. A heavy drinker since her teens, Young was unable to mask her addiction to alcohol and drugs while at the sauna. Cher said he had once found a bottle of vodka Young had stashed in the toilet cistern. He added, Melissa shouted, that's mine. I said I was going to flush it and she screamed, if you do that, I'll kill you. You have to be tough to run a sauna, so I stood my ground, and she backed down. But you never know with Melissa. She was like a tiger who could lash out at any moment." End quote. The other sauna girls also claimed that Young would steal their possessions, and Cher believed she would sell them to pay for drugs. After nine turbulent months at the sauna, Young had an explosive row with her boss. Cher said, I'd spent 13,000 pounds on a facelift and Melissa was very jealous. She had almost no breasts and wanted me to lend her 3,000 pounds for a boob job. I refused and said she should have saved her money instead of drinking it. Then I found out she had started turning tricks at her flat. I was angry because she was trying to sell to our customers. After everything that had happened, I sacked her." End of quote. Young was evicted from her new town flat after a client knocked on the wrong door and her neighbors called the police. And Cher says he witnessed her descent into greater depravity over the years. He claims she boasted of taking groups of drunken men, as many as 13 at a time, to the back of a nightclub to have sex with her. Young was also a serial shoplifter who had clothes worths of thousands of pounds piled in her stinking flat when she was arrested. Cher said Young also had a fixation with the Catholic Church, writing letters to the Pope and Cardinal Keith O'Brien and attending a central Edinburgh church. But he claims when she was asked to leave the congregation in 2011, after the record revealed she had been touting for business on buses by handing out notes to drivers offering sex for 50 pounds. After she was sacked from the sauna, Young was jailed for 18 months for shoplifting. When passing her sentence in the murder trial of Alan Williamson, Judge Lord Boyd told Young she had been convicted of a cruel and wicked attack. He said, having murdered him, you said about trying to persuade health professionals that you were suffering from diminished responsibility. 
While it's true that you have a severe personality disorder, it's clear it played no part in what happened that night. You showed no remorse. In fact, you told this court that you were indifferent to his death. The judge said it would be for the parole board to decide whether Miss Young should be released on license. The sentence was backdated to the 27th of December last year when she was remanded into custody. Before the five-day trial began, Young admitted killing Williamson on the grounds of abnormality of mind, but she denied murdering him. She claimed she saw a bright light and heard voices in her head before she flipped and stabbed Williamson 29 times. Young, who has a tattoo of the Virgin Mary on one arm and the devil Lucifer on the other, said the archangel Saint Michael had taken over her body and used her as an instrument of God to punish the unclean demon. She attacked Williamson after he rejected her Christmas present of a pair of unisex sneakers and a copy of the Sun newspaper's 2014 calendar. Young said if he had accepted the gifts from her, she would not have stabbed him. The jury heard that when police arrived at her apartment in Clermiston, Edinburgh, Miss Young's hands were covered in blood and Mr. Williamson was lying dead behind her front door. Jim Keegan, defense attorney, said in his closing speech, doctors had revealed his client was liable to violent and dangerous outbursts. He added, this can only have been a frenzied and savage attack. It's a very tragic case. Detective Inspector Grant Johnston of Police Scotland said, Melissa Young carried out a violent attack on her neighbor and the severity of the injuries inflicted led to his death. Officers in attendance quickly detained Young and at no time was there ever any risk to other members of the public, although this incident did shock the local community. The length of the sentence handed down today reflects the violent nature of this offense, end quote. In 2014, Young bit prison wardess Louise Henson's stomach during an argument about cigarettes. The incident occurred in the city's Corton Vale Prison, Scotland's only all-female prison, at a time when the prison shop was open and prisoners were out of their cells buying tobacco. Young lunged toward prison officer Henson, seizing and pulling her by the hair, causing her to fall to the floor. She then lay on top of the prison worker and kicked and struggled with her before administering the bite. Thank you for joining us on this special holiday episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Come back next week when we'll dive deep into more shocking true crimes. With every crime, someone somewhere has information that someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263.